How many of y'all have seen Schindler's List? Anybody? So just a few of y'all. Got a younger crowd for many. Um, Schindler's List. It's a movie came out in 1993. I remember, um, you know, back in the days of having to watch on only major broadcast channels without all the streaming stuff that we have now. But they did basically an uninterrupted Schindler's List, which is like, I don't know, four hours long. It's, it's a really long movie. But it was an historical account. Schindler is a guy, a Nazi, actually, who used his position in the Nazi party and as an <coughs> entrepreneur, as a businessman, as an industrialist, during World War II, uh, to, he used his position, his, his wealth, to save somewhere around, somewhere between 800 and 1,200 Jews from being killed just because they were Jews. So he hired these Jews into his factory and had them work, even though they didn't really probably do much work. He really just paid for their freedom. He paid for their lives. He literally used his funds for the purpose of other people's opportunity for life. To actually live, to not get killed by that evil and foul regime that was the Nazis. At the end of the movie... um, you know, and I don't, I don't know if this actually happened or not as far as what happens at the end that I'm saying. But at the end of the movie, Schindler is kind of lamenting over the fact that, oh, with, this, with these buttons, I could have saved one more Jew. You know, with, with everything else that he had, the, the money that he still had left over, even though it basically got him to bankruptcy, all the money that he gave away, all the things that he did by saving the Jews that he was able to save, he still thinks, well, what if I had sold my car? What if, what if I had given away these pieces of gold that I have, these little things around the house, these little things on my body that I'm wearing, these clothes I could have saved one more. This could have been one more. This could have been one more. It's a really, if you haven't seen it, it really is, um, I mean, it's an historically true story and you really should watch it. It's a very intense, I mean, you know, viewer discretion advised sort of thing um, because not everything in there is kosher. Um, that's really, a, that's a really bad pun. <laughs> that's a really bad pun. Oh my goodness. I should edit that out. But um, not, every, <laughs> not everything. Sometimes when you don't write out the sermon. Um, <laughs> but... Yeah, not everything in there is sort of viewer-friendly, sort of for younger people, but, uh, so watch it with caution. But it really is something good to, to just be aware of, the history of this world and things that were going on, and some things that certain people did to use their position, their money in particular, to save other people, literally their lives. We don't necessarily have that going on in Acts chapter 4 as we continue our journey through the book of Acts. But what we do have is this picture of generosity of people giving of their wealth for the benefit of somebody else. So maybe people's lives aren't being physically actually saved by what's happening here in Acts chapter 4. 
But this is the second time where we have a pretty similar explanation and picture into the early church, how they were generous toward one another with their wealth because they recognized that all that they had from the Lord was from the Lord and that what they had, they were just stewards of. And so let's read Acts chapter 4 and see that not everyone actually had this perspective. Not everyone was unified in the way that we would have liked to have seen. But it does start that way in Acts chapter 4. We're going to start reading in verse 32 and go through verse 11 of chapter 5. Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias... Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Kind of the story of two types of people. We have Barnabas, who is given as an example. And all throughout Acts and really Scripture, from what we see of him, Barnabas is this man who gives of himself for the purpose of the gospel, for the purpose of others, serving others, doing work for God, attesting to the resurrection, attesting to the truth that he has come to know. And then you have Ananias and Sapphira, who, like we read earlier, the reason why we read what we do in the Old Testament before our prayer, and before I get up to preach, is to give us from the Old Testament, a picture of a similar thing that happens in our text that we're looking at in the Old Testament. And so we saw there in Joshua chapter 7 something similar as what we find here in Acts chapter 4 and 5. We have a picture of 
the early people of God, as it were, the people of God as they were moving into the promised land. And one guy, Achan, decided, hey, I want these things for myself. I want to take these devoted things that I'm not supposed to have, but I want it. They look good. I thought it was a good decision at the time. And really the whole company suffers. All of Israel suffers. They think, hey, look, AI doesn't have a whole lot of people in it. And so we only need to send two or 3,000. Like we don't have to send 30,000. Like we can just send a few because we've already seen the amazing things that God has done for us, especially by crumbling down the walls of Jericho by just literally shouting, not even having to do anything else. Well, they had to march around, you know, a few times, but then they just had to shout. (laughs) And we see just the amazing nature of what God can do. And they said, look, we don't even need to send out our whole army. And then God's like, ah, you know, the problem is you've got some sin in your camp and you need to deal with that after 30-something people of their army were killed. And they thought, man, this is, this is not good. And God tells Joshua, get up off your face. Like, I'm not going to do anything until you do something about the sin that's in your midst. Because God is showing, even in the Old Testament, the beginning of the promised land, that God is serious about sin. God is serious about sin among his people. And so early on in the church, we have this similar instance. And I think one of the things that we can, as awful as a something that this is in Acts chapter 5, as it is also in Joshua chapter 7, where literally the people of God stone Achan and his family, and then where God doesn't even give Ananias and Sapphira a second chance, it seems, and he just drops them down dead at Peter's feet, and then the people carry him out. It seems that we ought to take note of the severity with which God intends to let us be aware that we ought to think about how we serve him. We ought to think about our lives and we ought to think about what it really means to follow after him. And so what what we find here is, is this picture of unity being tested. Right, going back to verse 32 of chapter 4, it says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. There was a unity here. And so unity is a byproduct of what? I mean, what do, what do you see here? What do you know to be true from God's word? Unity is a byproduct of what? You can, you can answer with your words audibly. Faith. Faith? Okay. What else? Love. Love? The Holy Spirit. The Spirit, yeah. One more. What's unity a a byproduct of? The gospel. It's interesting there, in some capacity, there are actually two things that we'll see explicitly, I think, in our text at the end of chapter four. 
that go along to provide this opportunity and the existence of unity in the church. One of the things that we find is their money, their possessions. What brought unity was the fact that they saw, like we sang earlier in one of our songs, that all that they had was God's. Right? The the song we sang at the cross, the end of the course says, I owe all to you. And if we really sing that and actually mean it, then we are singing and saying that we recognize that all that we have is God's. And if all that we have is God's, then can we say that anything is mine? Can we rightfully hold in our hands away from everybody else what it is that God has gifted to us in this life? Now, we talked about a little bit of the idea of Christian communism at the end of Acts chapter 2 whenever we looked at this first picture of the unity of the church. Right, in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Unity is a byproduct of what? Well, we just got a list there at the end of Acts chapter 2. The apostles' teaching, God's word. That brings unity. Devoting ourselves to that. Devoting ourselves to prayer, to a common God that we have. To the spirit who is among us. Well, one thing that we see again pretty explicitly And I think we ought to pause and take a minute since this is the second time that Luke has said basically a very similar thing, if not the same thing, in just a couple chapters. Early on in this book, in this picture that he gives us of the early church, we ought to consider what this really means for us. Again, look at verse 32. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Now, this is where many people have gone off the rails and they start drinking the Kool-Aid, figuratively or literally. They've got a leader who comes along and says, look at me, I have all the answers. I can provide us a way of all being unified together so that we all move in the same direction and are doing the same thing and believing the same thing. But really, oftentimes what that leader is trying to get to is puffing himself up, is, is lifting himself up, of saying, hey, how can I use the advantages that are before me to take advantage of everyone who is beneath me? to take advantage of those who are willing to listen, who are willing to follow along. So we see a lot of that. We have a lot of that in history. We have a lot of it that we've heard about over the last hundred years. And these people who convince this other group of people to follow them. 
or this person who convinces this group of people. This is not an uncommon event in history. I mean, it just takes one Hitler to convince an entire nation to follow after him to where we have to have this movie Schindler's List that I mentioned earlier and where only a thousand people were saved because of one man's actions, but how many million were killed? Because a leader rises up and says, I have all the answers. I know what's best for us. And he leads us down a path that we're not supposed to go. And so, yes, we ought to be cautious about an idea like is presented here in this picture of the early church that says, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Now throughout this and in Acts chapter two at the end, when it's mentioned, you'll notice that the need is exposed by those who are receiving sort of, you know, if you put the, uh, the scales where you have, you know, the rich people are up here and they have all this money and they're funneling down their money to the poor people, you'll notice that the words that are being used are that where the money is going to is to the needy, those who are in need. It's not just becoming this community where everyone sells everything that they have and then they all live together in this commune like the Qumran community, if you're familiar with that, back around the time of when Luke is actually writing in the time of Christ. Or if you're talking about the ideal that's set up by people, Greek people like Plato and Pythagoras, he's not just known for his theorem. He's also known for having this ideal community where everyone shares everything. But the point is, you are giving, if you have the means, you are giving so that someone else who is actually in need is being provided for. Not just because someone wants something, not just because you're up here and they're down here and we need to balance you out and have you all be the same because we all share the exact same stuff now. It is, you are using the things that God has given to you to be a force to provide for the needs of God's people who haven't been able to get to where that guy has been who haven't had the background who haven't had the foundation built around them the opportunities given to them maybe but it's it's this idea that's so difficult for each of us i think i know it's difficult for me and so maybe i should just speak for myself but i find it prevalent all around me and in this nation that we live in this individualism where everything that I have is mine. I have worked to earn this. I have done the things needed to get to the point where I am, and so I deserve this. How often do we find ourselves thinking in those terms? And sometimes... We may not explicitly say it like that. We may not mean it to be that harsh. But so often, we say, look at what I've done. And look at what I have. 
and we say, mine. And we keep our hand closed to what God has given to us without regard for those around us who are in need. Now, a couple more things on this. I think these are people that are a part of the church that are in need. I don't think that the apostles are collecting this money that people are willingly giving to them after they sell their fields, after they sell their houses, and they're just handing it out to anybody and everybody all over Jerusalem and all over Judea and all over Samaria. I think they are concentrating on those that are inside the church, which then, if you think about that, there are people who will abuse that. There are people who will say, well, I'm just going to be a part of that church or part of that community because they're going to provide for me and I'm not going to have to work. I'm not going to have to do all the things that are necessary for me to survive as a person in this world. That's why I think we ought to not just take this small snapshot of Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 34, or Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47, but we also ought to look at other passages in Scripture where Paul, for example, gives us clear instruction on how we ought to work. So like in 1 Thessalonians, he gives that charge. He also says in 1 Timothy 5 that it ought not to be left to the church to care for your family members. You ought to care for your family members. And then if you still need help on top of that, and you can't manage it by yourself because you don't have the means or the ability, then that's where the church should step in. It shouldn't be a pawning off on, hey, well, this is something that the church ought to do. All right, so 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 3, Honor widows who are truly widows, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents. For this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So there are things like that, like what Paul writes, there in 1 Timothy 5, that we ought to consider when it comes to how the church is providing for those who are in need. And I, I don't think that it is by chance that in the next chapter, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, that he goes on to say in verse 6, Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. What we celebrate as Christians is the fact that Jesus Christ 
gave his life to pay the debt of sin that we had earned and that we could not pay, he paid that debt. And we are forgiven from our sin when we put our faith and trust in him. And freely, he offers us forgiveness. God makes us his sons and daughters just simply by acknowledging that and submitting to that truth. (coughs) By saying, I am a sinner, and I don't want to keep living this life. And I know that God's way is better than mine. That God had a design, and I haven't followed that, but 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 I want to. I recognize that God's way is better than mine. And the only way that I can be forgiven from my wayward actions and thoughts and words is by putting my faith in Jesus. And the songs that we sing ought to help us to realize that it's not because of all the things that I've done that make me right with God or that keep me right with God. It is what Jesus has done and always will be what Jesus has done and who Jesus is. And so I don't have to try and prove myself to God by saying, God, look at how awesome and wonderful I am and look at these actions that I'm taking. I'm going to give everything that I have and give it to the poor. And thinking that me doing that is going to curry me some favor with God that it's going to earn me more privileges in the kingdom of God. I do that out of a heart that says, I truly believe that I owe everything that I have to you. And so the things that are mine, they're not really mine, but you have entrusted them to me so that I would be a good steward of them and show other people that your ways are better than my ways. That what you would have me do with my money is better than what I would choose to do with my money without any of these rules or regulations or ideals. And so one of the ways that we do that as Christians is by giving. One of the simplest ways that we do that is by some sort of tithe, some sort of giving of our money, our resources, to the work of the church, to the work of Christian organizations, to the work of other Christians that they're doing. Because what's going to keep us from being unified under the banner of I am a Christian, under the banner of I am following after God's ways for my life, God's ways for this world? What's going to keep us from doing that is by holding on to our resources that God has given to us and saying, no, this is for me, and I'm going to use it on myself, and I'm more important than that person. I'm more important than someone else who has a genuine need. That's going to keep us from being unified. Let me ask this question. And this is a really strange question. 
I did a, a Bible study years back. It was five or six years ago. And I remember it saying this. And at the time, I was thinking, this is really interesting. And I'm not sure anybody does this. But it said, let me just ask the question this way. How many people know exactly what you do with your money that you're not married to? I mean, maybe for some of you, even if you're married to somebody, they might not have any idea all of what you do with your money. How many people know exactly how you spend your money? Now, I mean, for some kids, you might not have any money and you'll be like, I'm broke, so, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't have anything to give. <laughs> be like, I ain't got a job yet, so, you know, whatever. But how many of us are open and transparent with how we spend the things that God has given to us? That seems very taboo. Anybody agree with that? That it seems very taboo, right? Yes, no. I mean, how many, how many, how many of you have actually ever are willingly like you've got it in your pocket? Like here's 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 my last bank statement. You know, here's my last credit card bill where where all my money went to, all the things that I paid for, right? And we're just coming off of well, tomorrow's Cyber Monday and Friday was Black Friday, where we are enticed and encouraged as a people in this nation to spend all kinds of money, right, on new shoes, which aren't a bad thing. Shoes wear out, so we need new shoes. It is a thing, right? I'm not trying to harp on my own family, okay? I mean, these shoes, like, if I, if I wear them out, you can see they're missing, you know, half of their traction, if you can see it. If I, if I wear them out whenever it's wet outside, I slip sometimes, and it's kind of dangerous. But anyways, it's okay, because it's not wet outside right now. Like, we need new stuff sometimes. Like, we got to have clothes to wear. We can't just walk around looking all raggedy. Like, I understand that we need to spend money on ourselves. And we ought to. God gives us that. And he knows that we need food and clothing. He's not unaware of these things. But how many people have you opened up your financial book to, so to speak, and said, hey, here's... Even just here's where I am. And that doesn't mean that you have to give it all away. Like, that's just a step before you, any of us, myself included, would get to the point where we're saying everything that I have, everything that I can monetize and give, I am monetizing and giving away. Like, that's out there. I mean, it's in here, but it's out there for us. But one of the first steps is just to bring into the light and be transparent and say, here's how I spend my money. Here's how I spend my time. Here's the things that trouble me. Here are the things that I struggle with. Here are the things that I'm naturally prone to wander into when it comes to sin. Maybe you can see in that discussion how that level of transparency, that honesty, that openness can with it bring 
an opportunity for change, an opportunity for unity, an opportunity for us to stop saying me and mine, an opportunity to, to give. One of the hardest things, and I'm reminded of this every Christmas, one of the hardest things for me as a kid, and I was an awful kid, horrendous, and Christmas, I loved Christmas because it was all about me and all the presents that I was going to get, right? And so the, the moniker, it's better to give than receive, I thought was the most ridiculous and backwards thing I'd ever heard in my life. And it's still difficult for me to actually believe that it is better to give than it is to receive. My heart is naturally prone toward wanting you to give me something. For like I want I want there to be giving, yes, but I want you to be giving to me. I, I want you to be blessed by giving to me. And of course then I would be blessed, but that's not, you know, I'm not gonna say that outright. That's where I naturally fall and my tendency is. But how often does Jesus speak about this idea of gaining and getting and getting and receiving and hoarding it. Luke chapter 12, the parable of the rich fool. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. He said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? He continues on, and I would encourage you to to read Luke chapter 12 this week, later tonight. So much talk about money. And I can't tell each one of us exactly what we ought to be doing and what we ought not to be doing. There are some things we ought not to be doing, sure. You know, I mean, we were talking earlier about going to Vegas you know, we, we ought not to be going to Vegas and wasting all of our money trying to win the jackpot on the slots or at the card table. Like, there are some things that we ought not to be doing. And there are some things that we should be doing. We should be giving back to God and the work that God is doing around us. And that's the second thing. And don't worry, I, I don't have a lot of more things. I know we've already been at this a while. 
But what's going to help bring us unity is a shared purpose. So, I mean, they're shared possessions, but then there's also a shared purpose. And what you find here in Acts chapter 4, in the middle of this discussion of money, in verse 33, it says, And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. So it's, it's sort of sandwiched in there, verse 33, between verses 32 and 34, which both talk about money and possessions and how they were unified because everything they had, they didn't say was their own. And right in the middle of it, they say, but they weren't just a community being a community for the sake of having community. They didn't just exist for the sake of pooling all their resources together. They pooled their resources together for a shared purpose. And that purpose that they were contributing to was so that the testimony of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus could continue to flourish. Unity is a byproduct of the gospel. When we both are striving, when we all together are striving toward the same goal, certainly we are going to become closer to one another as we walk down that same path toward that same destination. In here in Acts chapter 4 and chapter 5, it may seem like Ananias and Sapphira are given a bad break. And it, you kind of have to read between the lines. And I want to make sure and say this because I don't know if I'm going to come back to this next week. Ananias and Sapphira, it seems like they're given a bad break because it's not explicitly made clear what they did wrong. It seems like, if you read it a certain way, they were forced to sell their property and they were expected to give all of what they sold the property for to the apostles. You could sort of read it that way. But I think it's important, as you try to understand and make sure that what's going on here is legit, in verse 3, here's what Peter says to Ananias. Ananias says, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? So it's true, they kept back part of the proceeds that they were going to save for a rainy day or use for themselves for some purpose. But what Peter says now in verse 4, he's saying, look, it's not that you were expected to give all of the proceeds. It's that you said you were going to, that you were giving all the proceeds. But in fact, you kept some of it and still tried to make it look like you were going above and beyond whatever you were expected to do in the first place. Because you weren't ever expected truly to sell your land and to give it to us, the proceeds. You were never expected. You were invited to, you were encouraged you were given the opportunity, but it never was, hey, if you're going to be a part of this thing, if you're going to be part of the church, 
you got two pieces of property, you've got to sell one. You can live on the other one, but you got to get rid of the other one and give it to, to us. We'll decide what to do from there. That was never the case. What he says in verse 4, look at that. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? You could have done whichever you, whatever you wanted to with it before you sold it. And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? If you wanted to say, hey, I'm going to give half of the proceeds to the church, and everyone would have celebrated and said, great, wonderful. You can keep the other half for retirement or for, you know, your kid's college education. I don't know. <laughs> Whatever you needed it for. <laughs> yeah. Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? It's the hypocrisy. When we talk about unity, there are a lot of things that we can, you know, you, we can look at Philippians 2.2. 2. It says, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. These are some of the things that you mentioned. How, how is unity gotten to? How can we achieve unity? By a common faith, a common love, a common like-mindedness, one spirit, one purpose. Ephesians 4.3, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Romans 15, 5 through 6, May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Jesus Christ, so that with one heart and mouth you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are encouraged to unity as a church, as Christians, as people of God. But there are things that are going to keep us from being unified. And one of those things that's clearly exposed here is hypocrisy, is a lack of integrity is saying one thing while all the while we're doing something else, trying to puff ourselves up into a position that we're really not at. It's trying to serve both God and mammon, both God and money, which Jesus clearly says you just can't do it. It's just not possible. If money becomes your God, then the true God no longer is. At least not for you. And so, this is a work when it comes to our finances that we each ought to take some time if we have not already and consider what we are doing with what God has gifted us with. God doesn't say in the New Testament that you have to give a tithe. God doesn't say in the New Testament that just like these people sold everything that they had and had everything in common and lived in this communal type lifestyle, it seems, in some capacity, he doesn't say that we have to do that. But what he does say is that he loves a cheerful giver. What he does say is that holding on to some of these things and in our individualism can keep us from being unified 
And if we're not careful, it can destroy our witness to the world and his church. And so again, I would encourage us through a lot of meandering what we've done here in the end of Acts 4 and beginning of chapter 5 is to take a step back and to examine whether or not our perspective of our finances, our perspective of what God has given to us to be stewards of, is proper or not. Is God honoring or not? If there are ways that we can, individually and even together as a church, partner with those who are in need to meet those needs so that we might declare to ourselves, to our families, to our church, and to those who are looking that we recognize that what we have is the Lord's and all that we intend to do with what he has given us is to honor him back with what he has given to us. Is that the perspective that you have? And if that's not the perspective that you have and not the perspective that you are working toward, what is keeping you from that? And the difficult thing here as I end in half a minute, is are you willing to expose your weakness to somebody else to come alongside you in love and in grace to help you get there to where you want to go according to God's word? Are you willing to open up, not your wallet, but maybe just your account statement and say, hey, is this how it ought to be? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the encouragement that you have of the early church, the example that they give to us, that you have preserved to give to us that people can act like this and that they can prosper in the midst of it. And that even more than that, that your word can prosper and that the proclamation of the gospel can go forward. That it might be shown that you are what's most important to us and that your ways are better. God, would you give us the grace that we need to open ourselves up to the light, to not live in the darkness anymore. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.